0: This is Thinking in
1: Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Bill Zuckerman is a professor of sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College in Claremont, California. In 2011, he founded an interdisciplinary department of secular studies at Pitzer College, the first of its type in the nation. He's the author of several books, including Faith No More and Society Without God. He blogs for Psychology Today and The Huffington Post. His most recent work is Living the Secular Life, New Answers to Old Questions. I'm looking forward to my conversation with Professor Phil Zuckerman. Professor Zuckerman, every book has a story, and and my sense is that this book story has a great deal to do with your personal story can you Can you tell us how they intersect and how the book came about
0: uh sure well i'm a I'm a third generation non believer Most Americans were raised with some kind of religious faith, and those that have abandoned it have done just that they They were raised with it and, and for for various reasons and we can speculate why they they lost it or they walked away from it at some point. I never had. That experience. I I was never raised uh, to believe in God. I was never told there was a God. Um, My parents were non-believers, and believe it or not, all four (laughs) grandparents of mine were Um, non-believers. And I grew up in a pretty secular part of America. I grew up near Santa Monica, California in the 70s and 80s. I didn't know a lot of religious people. I never saw families going to church on Sunday mornings. I, I actually never went to someone's house where they said grace around the dinner table. So it wasn't till my first girlfriend actually, who was the daughter of a, of a non, a non-denominational evangelical pastor who had come out from, I think it was Kansas, that I even kind of came face to face with, you know, real believers. Uh, They were, uh, I I should say a very warm and wonderful family. And, uh, and I, uh, I appreciated the time I spent with them, but, uh, Basically, I didn't realize how strong religion was for most Americans until until after that. Until I got older, got into high school, went off to college, and realized that it's a big part of people's lives. And and then the big, I guess, the big challenge for me was to realize how many stereotypes there were, uh, negative stereotypes of people like me, non-religious, secular people, that we were immoral, that there was no, we we had no meaning in our lives, there was nothing to live for, we were. Uh, and so I wanted to. I, I knew that wasn't the case. I grew up with very moral people, very ethical people, in a very ethical moral, moral culture. Uh, the, the the place, uh, the people, you know, the, the milieu I was in cared a lot about the world and making it a better place. And and while I realize there are a lot of angry atheists out there, or a handful, I should say, and maybe there are some nihilists out there, or nihilists. That, that's just that was never my experience. And so I uh, I wanted to write a book. That uh, told America what it really means to be secular, and I wanted to tell the stories of secular men and women and how they live their lives. And I certainly drew from my own experience, but I've also spent, you know, ten or fifteen years now studying secular people, interviewing them, uh, getting their stories, analyzing their worldviews. So I, I don't know if I I don't want to go on too much, but I was raised in a secular home, in a secular culture, and. And I wanted to write a book that, that expressed the best of that culture to the rest of the world.
1: Well, from the uh, book about Chapter 2, I, I came to know that at least uh, you were a second-generation unbeliever in that sense. But uh, the, the background is really, really interesting. And, and just based upon what you said, there's a lot I want to come back to. But let me just move to this. Uh, you have established the nation's first Department of Secular Studies in an American academic institution. And, and that's a department like any other department there at Pitzer College. How did that happen, and you got a lot of headlines for it what's been the result thus far
0: uh yeah, okay, well, basically, uh when I was in grad school you you know you could study religion there's uh, academia has been studying religion since its inception. I mean, the field of anthropology was born out of the study of religion. Psychology has been studying religion since its inception, sociology. Obviously, philosophy, history. I mean, if one wants to study religion and religious people, there's an endless array of possibilities, academic departments, journals, uh, academic associations, and annual conferences. I mean, there's no, no nook or cranny of religious life that has not been explored by some academic, either a historian, a political scientist, or whatnot. Um, but about 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, it's a little fuzzy for me now, Uh, I was going to these conferences because I was very interested in religion, Uh, but some of us started to meet and we realized, wow, there's no one really studying uh, non-religious people. And the numbers are growing. Um, The numbers of people who are saying they're non-religious have been increasing steadily over the last 50 years in this country. Now they're at their peak, somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of Americans saying they have no religion. And of course, not all of them are convinced atheists, to be sure, but many of them are. And uh, there was no academic forum, no academic discipline that was saying, well, how can, you know, you've got departments of Jewish studies, you've got departments of Islamic studies, you've got departments of Buddhist studies. I mean, and these are great. I'm glad they exist. It's important that we study every facet of religious life. But there's a huge chunk of humanity, uh, according to the recent few estimates, they estimate that by 2050, a full 15% of humanity, global humanity, will be non-religious. Um, that's way more than there are Jews. That's way more than there are Sikhs. So there was a group of us at these conferences who were like, wait a minute, you know, we, we have no way to study secular people. We don't know how secular people live their lives. We don't know about their brains. We don't know about their personalities. We don't know about their politics. We don't know about their demographics. And uh, I came back to where I teach at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, and found out that several of my colleagues had had. Similar interests in either political secularism or philosophical humanism or what not and we were able to, after several uh gatherings and meetings and, and conf- you know and retreats, try to look at how what, what what might it look like to actually study secular life as a discipline and We were successfully able to establish this program and we we teach uh, classes in the history of free thought secularism. Uh, we, political science classes, uh, philosophical sociology, and they're not all. It's not about. It's not about pushing or praising secularism. In fact, I uh, teach a lot about some of the horrors that have been done in the name of atheism, particularly in the Soviet Union. So we, we're trying to be objective. We're trying to be unbiased, and we're trying to be, act, uh, you know, scientifically rigorous in just studying this this huge chunk of humanity that seems to be growing, and we want to know who they are, and and why they are, and what they are, and all that.
1: This newest book, Living the Secular Life, New Answers to Old Questions, mixes a bit of personal testimony and and background, uh, philosophical musings with a lot of sociological data. And uh, even in your introductory comment, you pointed us to some of that data. And uh, before turning to the larger worldview issues at stake in in terms of how you lay out your book, you mentioned you're a third-generation nonbeliever. That's rather unusual, not unprecedented, but unusual in terms of Western societies and certainly in terms of the United States. But in your book, you point out that the vast majority of children eventually hold to the religious worldview or non-religious worldview of their parents, and uh, I believe the statistic in your book was that 85% of children raised in uh, homes which both parents are, are secular in worldview, they tend to adopt the same secular worldview themselves.
0: Yeah, uh, that's correct. Um... We we know, and I, and I think uh, it's pretty common sense, but we have the, the data as well that children tend to adopt the identities and worldviews of those who raise them and love them and feed them and protect them and provide for them. This is a sort of standard sociological, anthropological, psychological rule of thumb. There are exceptions. You always get the uh, uh, child who goes a different way or rebels. But as a general rule, the percentages and averages are such that children raised uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a Mennonite home tend to stay Mennonite. And if they leave Mennonite, they might choose something close to Mennonite. Uh, if they're raised LDS, uh, they tend to stay LDS. If they're raised Jewish, they tend to stay Jewish. And I say, and, you know, tend is the operative word here. It doesn't mean always. It just means that's the, the observable tendency. But what we're finding is the same holds true for secular families. So children that are raised in homes without religion also grow up to identify uh, that way and see the world that way. And so it's... Uh, it doesn't surprise sure. us, um, but it's just something no one's been studying, and we're seeing that percentage growth. So in the 1950s, for example, fewer than 4% of children were raised in non-religious homes. Today, it's at 11%. Now, that's not a huge amount, but still, it's double digits. Um, you know, there's only, only about 2% of, of children are raised in Jewish homes. So just to give you a sense of 11% of people being raised in non-religious homes is pretty significant. It's, it's still a, a, a stark oh, minority, yeah. but...
1: Yeah, I yeah, think just growing. about anyone would concede that's a, that's a significant number and percentage and, and yeah. in all likelihood growing. In your book, you cite Steve Bruce and Tony Glendinning, who, uh, mm. and, and as you write, found that children raised without religion really grow up to be religious themselves. And uh, you quote them saying, if someone was not raised in a particular faith, the chances of acquiring one later in life are small. You ask how small, their answer, about 5%. Now, I think whether you are a religious believer or unbeliever, that's a pretty astounding statistic.
0: It is. Now, I will contextualize that. They're talking about uh, their research on, on kids in Great Britain, and Great Britain has secularized to a far greater degree than we have, particularly in Scotland, where about half the residents say they're actually uh, non-believers in God. So, you know, you could see that if you're in Scotland and you're in Edinburgh and you're raised by non-religious folks, the chances of acquiring faith are going to be that slim. I think it would be different here in the U.S. where faith is more abundant uh, there's more options. There's more vitality to our religious marketplace. But even here, the big story, you know, I just have to say, that demographically, we know that, that the more religious parents are, the more children they tend to have. And that, that works across religions, Jews, Muslims, Mormons, Christians, Catholics, you bet. The more strongly religious people are, the more kids they tend to have. And the more secular folks are, the fewer kids they tend to have. So the fact that we're seeing this rise of irreligion in America, that more and more people saying they have no religion, uh, is not a result of birth. It's, in fact, it's contradicting the birth rates. Just in terms of birth rates, secular people should not be growing at all. And so what that means is a lot of Americans are, are rejecting their religious identity. They're, they're not going to church as much anymore. They're walking away from their faith. Um, not all of them obviously lose their faith. They may just not want to identify with a particular a religious tradition for various reasons that might be political or personal or whatnot. But, but, but the truth is, even here in the United States, yes, children raised without religion tend to stay that way. And even kids raised in religion, we're seeing an uptick. Just to give you an example, uh, between 18 and 29 year olds, a full 35% now say they have no religion. And that's according to Pew, which is, in my right. opinion, a very reliable, uh, source. And, and in fact, that's the highest percentage we've ever seen. And people often say, well, they're young, you know, when they get older, when they get married and have kids, they might return to the fold, which often is the case. However, if we look at earlier age cohorts, so if we look at 18 to 29-year-olds in the 80s, 18 to 29-year-olds in the 70s, in the 60s, we've never, we, never, we don't have such a high percentage saying they're non-religious. So even if some of these 35% of Americans in their 20s return to religion, it's still a larger chunk saying they're non-religious than we've ever seen before.
1: Professor Zuckerman, in terms of the comprehensive worldview, your attempt in this book is really from uh, from cradle to grave. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, to uh, attempt to to demonstrate how a secular life can be plausible and, uh, and fulfilling. Now, the need to write a book like this is interesting in and of itself. So prior to you writing this book, Living the Secular Life, did anyone else come up with any kind of... Uh, of comprehensive worldview laid out in just this way, or or is this one of these books that could only have arisen uh, in the early twenty first century?
0: I think it's. I hate to. I, I hate to say it, but I think it's more the latter. Not not to uh, you know prop myself up a bit, but no, I did think I was offering something new here. And, and I'll just say this: previously, you had kind of two kinds of books. You had um, those books that were sort of just like attacking religion, you know, why religion's bad and all the evils it's done. Or you had books that were attacking theism, you know, arguments against the existence of God, really articulating atheist criticisms. And, and those are all fine and good. Um, I don't know if they criti- uh, convince a lot of people. Maybe they do. I've, I've interviewed some people who said they read this book or that book, and that, that uh, ha- caused them to, to, to have some doubts about their faith or whatnot. But in general, that's really focusing on religion from a critical perspective. But, you know, the people that I know and live among, they're not obsessing about religion. They don't hate religion. They don't hate God. They don't... Uh, it's just not a big part of their life. And and that's a huge distinction between the kind of secular person, the secularist who's, you know, obsessed with religion and trying to fight religion and trying to limit its its role in society and trying to disabuse people of their religious faith and convince them that they're wrong. And then the people that I that I live among, who are just living their lives, loving their children, uh, enjoying their work, enjoying their hobbies, their creativity, Mm -hmm. nature, whatnot, and they're not really obsessing about religion, and they don't care if other people believe.
1: In your book, one of the interesting things you point out is uh, what sociologists refer to as a social location. Uh, Mm. You pointed out this in terms of your own background, but uh, also in terms of where you live right now, uh, teaching in one of the Claremont Colleges. You explicitly say in the book that you really don't run into very many traditional believers in terms of everyday life. And uh, to some extent, that that's more likely on the coast, near the campus, at a more metropolitan area. But, uh, but that's not where most Americans live, uh, even those who'll be reading your book. Mm.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, most Americans do live in urban settings, to be sure. I mean, California and New York combined, are, you know, the most pop, in Florida, the most populated states in the country. So numerically, uh, rural, uh, pe- real, people living in, in small towns are the minority, but you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, you know, pockets of Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Eugene, Vermont. I mean, these are atypical. Most Americans live in a, in a culture, and as you know, where religion is much more abundant. Uh, little league games start with prayers. There's prayers in town halls. Uh, you know, you, you've got religion is, is much more uh, a part of the culture, part of the media. And in those places, you'll find secular people tend to be a bit more defensive. They do tend to be a bit more uh uh prickly. Whereas uh when you live in a part of the country, understandably that where religion isn't that strong, you kinda move on to other things and you occupy your time with other other ways. But I but I wanted to you know, part of this book was to, to sort of articulate what it means to be secular in the hopes that even secular people themselves could appreciate it. But I also wanted, you know, my in laws are, are are believers. They're they're born again Christians and and they, you know, I wanted folks like them to understand that there is a huge swath of secular culture that's not threatening, that's not immoral, that's not angry, but uh, is fulfilled and ethical. And so, yeah, I, I guess I was trying to reach the folks in, in, in more uh, broader America where, where they don't maybe interact with a lot of secular people, and I wanted right. them to know what it's that. all about.
1: Yeah, I could see that. Let, let me ask you another question. William James famously wrote about the, the uh, varieties of religious experience. In one sense, uh, uh, at least part of your book could be subtitled, The Varieties of Non-Religious Experience, because you really differentiate between non-believers who take the shape of atheists versus agnostics, or, or uh, those committed to ethical culture, or, or secular humanists. Uh, and uh, you don't seem to be quite at home in any one of those, but explain mm. to us kind of the layout right now in America in terms of the landscape of unbelief.
0: Mm. Well, I love your subtitle. It's so true. It's great. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, part of, the, part of the joys of secular studies, as it were, is to map this terrain. I mean, we've differentiated different types of religious believers for, for you know, a, a century. You know, we've, we've typologized and dissected, and we've got categories. And, you know, everybody knows if you say a person's religious, that could mean so many things. And, and yet, the non-religious, we haven't scrutinized and dissected to the same degree. So it's in its infancy. We are starting to do that. If I had to just, you know, right now I would I would I would sort of draw it like this. You've got a huge swath of people who John Shook calls apotheists. They just don't care about God. They're not they're not against God. They're not non belief They're not atheists. They're not theists. It's just not on their radar. They're thinking about other things. It might be the football game. It might be politics. It might be their neighbor. You just don't know. And then you have a group of people who are sort of uh, uh, engage with religion on the church-state issue. So these are the folks that, you know, they don't want prayers in public gatherings at, at graduations. They don't want to see the Ten Commandments in courthouses. They don't want the Pledge of Allegiance to contain the words under God. And they, they feel like they're fighting a very vigilant fight, uh, you know, to keep government out of religion and keep religion out of government. Then you have another swath of of secular culture that's uh, kind of philosophically engage with the questions of religion they they want to argue about the existence of God, about immortality, about the existence of the soul and they 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 want to really um engage at that level and then you have folks who are on the more sort of secular humanist area where they're not they don't want to oppose religion. And they don't want to talk about what they don't believe, they want to talk about what they do believe, you know, making the world a better place, human rights, women's equality, uh, ending racism, ending sexism, um, it, you know, fighting against global warming. They, they want to say, well, we believe in humanity, that's where we place our faith, and we know right. others may think that's misguided, but that's where we're at. So I would say that you know um, you have the kind of – that's how I would look at it right now, the kind of more secular humanist types who are advocating uh, principles and ethics and morals and trying to make the world a better place, the church-state folks, the arguing about atheism and theism folks, and then those – the indifferent, the kind of benignly indifferent who just don't give it much thought.
1: As Christians, we understand that we have the intellectual and theological responsibility to come to understand truthfully and accurately what other people and other religious belief systems actually believe. But we as thinking Christians also need to extend that logic to the world of unbelief as well, and that moral responsibility with it. And that means that we have the responsibility to understand unbelief in terms that are equally clear and equally accurate. I think one way to understand this is in terms of Jesus' command of love of neighbor. If we really love our neighbor, then that love will be translated into seeking to understand what our neighbor actually believes. Of course, as Christians, that's not something that we simply understand in order to leave it there. But that is, we need to note, a necessary place to start. a book, as you lay out your argument, I think you start and, and end pretty predictably in this sense. I, I would think that if I were writing a book in, in order to defend a secular worldview over against uh, the uh, preconceptions, especially of those who aren't unbelievers, then I would have to start out with morality, and, uh, and that's exactly where you start out. And, and so I want to set this up by saying, many times, evangelical Christians uh, seeking to think these things through and to, to think biblically and, uh, and genuinely in terms of the Christian truth claim about this, that they will say, or I, perhaps I should say we will say, that uh, atheism makes it impossible to be truly moral. Now, I want to start out by saying I don't think that's a good argument, but I think it points to a good argument. And, and so before I get to what I think is a better argument, let me just say that I, I think it's wrong for us to speak about individuals and say that an unbeliever can't be a moral person, and uh, mm. yet, uh, before I follow up on that, that that really is something that uh, that you see as an obstacle to uh, increasing the influence of of unbelievers in America today. That's, uh, you hit that head on in your chapter.
0: Mm. Wow, that's a big one. <laughs> You're, you you got it. The morality question is huge. It's the first thing. Most non-religious people are asked, you know, well, how can you be moral if you're not religious, or how can you be moral if you don't believe in God? And so you're right, I did want to approach that head on. Um, let me see, how can I, how can I approach this? Um, do you want, I mean, I would start by acknowledging the many studies that show that religiously involved Americans uh, give more to charity than those who are not religiously involved. They donate more time, more money. More energy to to charities, religious and secular charities. So, so there is. uh, We have to acknowledge that on a certain level, uh, uh, religiously engaged and religiously involved Americans they tend to uh, report higher levels of subjective well-being. They live longer. They have lower suicide rates. So, there's a lot of benefits that related to morality, as it were, or well-being that that we see with religious life. But what's interesting about those statistics and surveys as they all involve religious involvement, not belief in God specifically. In fact, you can control for that. And when you measure people who believe in God, but don't go to church or synagogue, they actually don't have the same levels of charitable giving and well-being. And conversely, when you study atheists who do go to church because they're married to someone or they have a relative or whatnot, they have the same levels of charitable giving, altruism, and so on and so forth. So it does seem to be this Communal aspect of religion that has the moral benefits as opposed to just belief in God per se. Now, that, I just that's a kind of I just want to throw that out. Now, right. as for the belief in God uh, and morality, I mean, do you, I, I'm not sure where you want me to go here. Do you want me to explain secular morality, or do you want no, me to explain?
1: No, I, I, I uh, you do that pretty pretty well in your book, except okay. to the extent that I want to. Uh, let me just let me go ahead and go to part two here because uh, what I, what I wanted to say was that uh, I think it's important that. That Christians think and speak carefully about this, and uh, I think the the wrong way to put it. And and, uh, if this is of interest to you, I suppose yeah. I think the wrong way for Christians to put this is that an atheist can't be a moral person. That is, can't operate by uh, moral standards and uh, and be an upright citizen, a wonderful next door neighbor, and uh, stop at red lights and uh, and uh, and and stay outside of a life of crime and. So I think that's the wrong way to wrong way to put it, and and you do make that case. I, I, I want to acknowledge that, but what I want Thank to press you. on is, yes. where then uh, is the origin of a moral code that mm. uh, that actually can produce a moral life? Because it seems to me that that's the weaker part of your argument. Where where in the world okay. does does this morality come from?
0: Okay. Well, that's that's a huge age-old question that philosophers have been uh, discussing forever, and I'll try to do my best. I'm actually not a philosopher by training. I'm a sociologist, but I do dabble in those realms. Um, So I'll start with a a sort of uh, a little anecdote, and then I'll try to be more direct. You can imagine if there was a flight taking off from LAX uh, this morning heading to Indonesia that were to crash. And let's say that plane were to crash on an island somewhere, uh, and miraculously or whatnot, you know, there were a hundred survivors and the, the, the islands uninhabited. Well, we've got these hundred survivors and you know, people are going to be hungry. People need uh food and there's water to be found and there's food to be had because there's fish and there's other animals on this island and there's springs and whatnot. And we've also got to maybe have a signal so that, uh, so we can be rescued. And you could imagine that those hundred or so folks would, could sit around and think, well, what are some rules we want to live by here? Well, Everybody's got to take a turn getting fresh water, and everybody's got to take a turn uh, take, taking care of the few kids, and everybody's got to take a turn fishing, and, and if someone's sick, okay, you know, we, we could just easily sit around and decide what would be a fair, just way to secure a pleasant life while we're waiting to be rescued. You know, someone's got to man the fire signal, and, and someone's got to chop down the wood, and, and and it wouldn't be necessary at any point for someone to say, oh, and by the way, we have to we have to believe that all these rules came from an invisible magic deity. That's, that one could go there. It's not necessary. One could just, we can imagine these hundred people could, could very realistically and easily come up with an ethical code, as, to use your words, or moral code, and it would come from those people themselves based on their experience, based on their sense of empathy. So that's that's the way I would enter this conversation. What I would say is, for us, uh, we're, w- humans are the source of morality, and we have to decide, and we have to figure out what is moral? And we do that using our brains, which have evolved with the capacity for empathy so we can understand when someone else or some other thing is suffering. And secular morality is really about empathy and treating people the way we would want to be treated and limiting suffering in sentient beings and increasing fairness and justice. And, it, and then we have to debate and discuss what that... There's no, there is no uh, stone code tablet we can look to. We have to figure that out ourselves. And sometimes we get it wrong sometimes we get it right, but the face of the other compels us. The suffering of other humans compels us. And so, no, we don't believe there is an eternal uh, moral code that has been handed to us from a non-human source. And uh, maybe that means we're doomed to moral chaos. I just don't see it that way. In fact, I would argue that if morality comes from somewhere else, then really we're just being obedient. We're, it's, we're guilty of moral outsourcing. We're not looking to our own consciences and our own experiences to, to, to determine what's right and wrong. We're just receiving orders. And that may be moral to some people. It's not moral to me. And I, yeah. if morality comes from God, well, then if, moral, if God says, kill your son... You do that, and that's exactly what Abraham does. And yes, God stops him, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story was: Would you even kill your own child if God said so? And if you really believe God is God, then yes, that's what you do. And humble me sitting here in my office in Claremont, California. I'd, I'd have to say I'd say no to that order. Um, if I don't care how big this God is, how many planets He's created, how many—even if He created me—I wouldn't kill my son just because of a command. So. I guess we have to choose between obeying commands or, or constructing our morals ourselves, and I see strengths and weaknesses in both choices. I, I, I don't think secular morality has all the answers, but I'm terrified of, of, of theistic morality because I don't think obeying commands is – that's not how I understand morality, and that's yeah, certainly
1: not well, how I, I – that's really interesting. I do think that, uh, and you may or may not be thinking of it in these terms, but that, that, that's really not uh, an accurate representation of kind of the Judeo-Christian moral tradition that starts out with God making us moral creatures as we are made in His image. And yes, the issue of obedience then comes because He is the divine lawgiver, but He does mm. expect us to be moral creatures in, sense, in the sense of obeying Him, but also in terms of, uh, of, of thinking thoughts after Him uh in so far that we would we would want to obey him and uh, it's fascinating you bring up abraham because uh abraham trusted in god's character to be superior to his own moral autonomy and uh and and that's why he's valorized and of course the apostle paul too that raises a fascinating issue i had an atheist philosophy teacher who one time pointed out i think very perceptively that uh every nonbeliever is a specific kind of nonbeliever that is uh generally there is a there's a rejection of something, and uh, whether it's right. Judaism or Christianity or, 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 or you know, variants thereof uh, of of Catholicism or, or uh, you name it. But um, in, in that in that sense, and uh, I've looked at your other academic work as well. I've Read all your books and read a lot of your uh, your academic uh, research articles, and, and looking at well, one in, in which you compare unbelief in America and in Scandinavia. There's mm. some really interesting material that didn't make it into the book, and uh, and I found it captivating, frankly. And and that's where you well, say that you. one of the issues that leads to increased levels of unbelief is a sense of security. And uh, you're talking mm. about this in economic terms and uh, criminal justice terms and all the rest. But it leads me to ask you a question: uh, the kind of unbelief that you're talking about here does that really require a, a Judeo-Christian moral tradition behind it to produce even the kind of structures and, uh, and security that would make organized, uh, increasing unbelief possible?
0: You know, I think there's something to that. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that, and I, I guess I, I differ from some of my colleagues on this front. Uh, I do look at the trajectory of, of civilizations, and I look at where, where are human rights the strongest. Where is democracy the strongest? Where is freedom the strongest? It's in societies that have had a Christian uh, presence for many centuries, per- particularly a Protestant Christian uh, presence. Uh, I'm thinking of Scandinavia, I'm thinking of the Netherlands, although there's some Catholicism there too. And if I look at the world today where there's, you know, the worst uh, situation for human rights, um, it tends to be an Islamic society. So I I, I am not, uh, I think there's a lot of good in Christianity in the past and in the present. And so, yes, I'm amenable to that, to that theory of, you know, secular humanism in and of itself could be an outgrowth of a certain under Judeo-Christian worldview and tradition and heritage. And, uh, and I, and I agree with you that, or I agree with your atheist professor that every non-believer is a particular kind of non-believer. You bet, because these things are, you know, it's always in a cultural context. You're always grappling with what's around you and in front of you. And uh, having lived in Denmark for two years, I actually don't know if I would be as interested in secularism as I am because of the kind of the way religion plays and Christianity plays itself out there uh, is so different from my experiences here in the United States. And that would surely have changed my own identity and sense of self. And uh, yeah, that's yeah and, I, and I also just, uh, I know we're, we're uh, short, maybe short on time, but I, I do want to, you know, I appreciate, too, I'm, I'm no theologian, I'm not up on the latest uh, or even the oldest uh, discussions of, of, of morality from a Christian viewpoint, so I, I didn't mean to reduce, you know, all of uh, theistic morality to, you know, obedience to a sky god, so I appreciate you uh, pointing that out.
1: Well, that, that's the value of a conversation uh, in terms of, mm. uh, of, of where, even where we disagree, having a mutual understanding of the terms at stake and of, of what the other believes, which which leads me to say about your book. Um, this new book, Living the Secular Life, uh, it, it's very well written. I, I, I found it very interesting, and uh, I really appreciate the way you mix in your own personal experience, even references to your to your wife and 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 mm. to your three children. And uh, there's obviously a great deal of meaning in your life. That's that's very clear. And uh, mm. so I want to come back and and if you will allow me, just 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 press the issue. If I understand your worldview in terms of why there's something rather than nothing. Uh, and uh, and and where everything is headed, and uh, if if death is just the end, um, do you think it's really possible to reduce all of that to uh, to a purely materialistic or, or naturalistic understanding? Uh, it, it, it seems to me that's actually a greater philosophical challenge, or it would be to me, even than the question yeah. of
0: morality. Well, thanks for your compliments. First off. Um, Let's and I appreciate these deep questions. I I love talking about this stuff, and could do it all night. Um, and I'll I'll just say, let me see if I can articulate this. Um, there was a philosopher Wittgenstein, and he said something, and I'm I'm gonna butcher this, but he said something like, "Of things that we don't understand, we ought not speak." In other words. And I and I think that captures my understanding here. If I could get to your question, I think what you're saying is, you know, if I really thought that all this life and my children and my endeavors and my wife and my loved ones and the whole world here is nothing but material particles spinning around in space, just a bunch of carbon, wouldn't how how can I attach any great meaning? And I do attach great meaning to my life and to the trees that I'm staring at right now outside my window and the mountains and the clouds. Uh, I feel tremendous meaning in, in existence. How could I do that if I really thought this was all just a bunch of uh, material atoms? Um, and I would say it may be more, but what that more is, I have nothing to say about. It's beyond my comprehension. It's beyond my understanding. And all I can do is focus on the things of this world that I can try to understand or or try to grapple with. And I think one of the problems I had with religion growing up was I felt like it was often the imaginations of humans from long ago who were trying to explain things given their limited perspective and their explanations and their stories just don't ring true to me today. If they ring true to others, bless them. I, 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 how lucky. But when I read the Bible, it, it, it doesn't speak to me the way the collected works of Shakespeare do, for example. So all I can say is, I don't think Shakespeare came from another plane or from heaven, but his his insights give meaning to my life in ways that the Quran or the Bible never have been able to do. I, you know, uh, Max Weber, the, one of the founders of sociology, described himself as religiously unmusical, and I always thought that was a great a great way to say it. I, I guess it just the the, the melodies that I uh, of religion have never quite uh, worked for me. Um, they just don't. Ring true, and so all I can say is, I I can't tell you, I can't conf- I can't say, well, here's why life has meaning for me, X, Y, and Z, or you know, I, it does. I'm lucky in that sense, perhaps, uh, or I'm blessed to use my mother-in-law's parlance, but uh, I really don't understand. I, I and this is not a critique. This is an honest admission. I never quite understood why life would somehow have more meaning if there was a God or an afterlife or if my soul lived on. I, I, I still, to me, it was always a non sequitur. It's sort of like, and why would that somehow make life more meaningful? If anything, it would make this life a little less meaningful for me. I'd kind of be tapping my feet waiting for the real show to start, <laughs> you know, and think, well, this is all temporary and impermanent and just material. I can't wait for the real show to take place. Like, What do I got, 40 more years, 30? Well, maybe I'll get hit by a car tomorrow and it'll really start, so... Again, I, I'm not trying to be facetious or critical. I'm just saying, like, from my perspective, I never quite understood that leap. You yeah. know,
1: uh, Augustine, the great uh, Christian theologian of the the 5th century, the, the fall of the Roman Empire, in his great book on the mm. city of God, he actually dealt with that in a way that, that I, I think to our shame, many many believers, uh, Christian believers, actually actually never get to, and that is the, the hard question is if the city of God is indeed our ultimate destiny and that, that's where ultimate meaning is to be found in the, in the direct rule of, uh, of God, then why indeed are we in the city of man, and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and why is it important? So uh, I appreciate the questions I you're asking. I, I really do, and, and uh, I, I found your book fascinating because it, it really does attempt to present a uh, a worldview uh, for unbelief expressed through the various big questions of life, including how you raise children. And we kind of started out with mm. that in terms of the influence parents mm. have on children. And, and uh, yeah. th- then also dealing with, uh, with whether there's any meaning. You, you talk about aweism uh that, uh, that mm. you do have the experience <laughs> of awe. And, uh, and I, I just have to say, as a, as a Christian, I, I just wonder, I, I, how, how far does that go? In other words, d- d- does awe not somehow... Uh, point to the giver of uh, of of what brings that awe, or is it just a givenness
0: you know it's different for everybody I, I can only you know with that kind of transcendental feeling or experience, one can only speak on one 's own subjective terms uh, i I can't say what it means to others or what kind of conclusions they draw. I can say that the times in my life where I have found a deep sense of awe at being at life at at the wonder and the majesty of it all have been very powerful moments and very sublime. Um they just don't point me to anything. They just are what they are. I don't know how else to explain it. They just are what they are and and uh I don't know if other people have them or have them more or have them less but but I at least can uh understand those folks who who, who for them if it does point to a God or a savior I I, I can understand that. It just hasn't hasn't happened that way for me. Uh, but it's certainly important, and a wonderful part of life. And I, and I, and I don't know. I just, I really want to commend. Uh, you know, you, you know, I, you've said a lot of nice things about my work, but I just want to uh, uh, turn it around and say that I'm just so uh, uh, happy that that you've reached out to me and have had and felt like having this conversation. And it's really, uh, it's so important. I think it's so important for us to understand each other as, as as Americans and just as fellow humans. So I really do respect where you're coming from, and I appreciate the that you've, you've shown an interest, and, and these questions are so
1: wonderful. Well, that's also very kindly said, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate the, the, the way you've engaged the conversation, and I think this kind of thing is altogether far too rare. And, uh, mm. and, and I also want to say, I, I, I think you approach this with a kind of uh, openness that, uh, that marks a, a clear distinction when uh, compared, for instance, with the so-called new atheists, the, uh, mm. the Richard Dawkins kind of, uh, of, of absolute uh, condescending dismissal. Of of even the questions yeah. and uh, and I appreciate yeah. I, you know reading your book I, I I knew that at least you you understand and and affirm the importance of many of these questions and that that's a place to start in a conversation I think.
0: Well, I, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I just don't think how I don't know how anyone can be so dismissive of a religion unless they've just never really experienced the good of it. Because fortunately, I've been lucky enough to experience a lot of uh, good religious people, and I've been to a lot of good churches and. And it's those faces that pop into my head the minute the minute people start going on a tirade about religion. I think of that Lutheran church I I spent the morning with up in Solvang. I think about my in laws. I think you know. I think hold on here. I think about Martin Luther King. You know, I, I always tell yes. atheists, I say, hey, read Martin Luther King's Strength to Love and then get back to me and you tell me how awful you know. And that's not to say I don't sharpen my my tongue sometimes and and throw out a lot of criticisms in my work and in my lectures. But I I do try to recognize that much of the world is religious and much of the world is quite good, and we, we, we don't get anywhere by demonizing each other.
1: Let me ask you to, uh, to speak as a sociologist in particular for a moment here, and a sociologist who is head of the only interdisciplinary department of secular studies in the United States. Speaking to evangelical Christians, and, uh, and that would include church leaders and, and, uh, and others, chart for us what you think, sociologically speaking, is the future. Because uh, the trends, as you mentioned in the, in the Pew Religious Landscape Study, the, the trends are increasingly secular, but, but tell us where you think this is going.
0: Yeah, um, all I can do is kind of look at the data up till now and see which way the arrows are pointing. That doesn't mean they can't reverse in five years. The ones that are pointing up might start pointing down and vice versa. But it does look like right now more and more American... Individualism is on the rise. This is not about secularism per se, but secularism is a manifestation of it. Um, people are, you know, as, as, as Robert Putnam talked about in his famous Bowling Alone book, we are not joining as much anymore, we're not hanging around each other as much anymore, and this is affecting religious life as well. I think the internet plays a role here, to be sure, but people are, I think you're seeing church attendance is going to continue to go down, particularly for Catholics and mainline Protestants. The places we're seeing some upticks, of course, are the more Pentecostal traditions and the more conservative evangelical traditions seem to be maintaining their numbers. Uh, uh, they're not going up, but they're not going down to the same degree as other other traditions. Um, but what is, again, rising is this number of percentage of Americans who say they are non-religious. They don't want to identify with any religious tradition. You know, uh, back in 1990, that was 8%. Today, it's somewhere between uh, 20 and 30%. Uh, Pew is looking around 25% now, which is a pretty good conservative estimate. So... And when we ask people what is causing this, the number one, one of the most prominent responses is they don't like the politics of the Christian right. And again, I'm speaking here not as, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm just telling you what the data shows us. So, for example, when Mike Huckabee says he's going to oppose gay marriage and he says, you know, hey, I may be on the wrong side of history, but I'm on the right side of the Bible, I think he's correct. He's, he's assessing the situation. He may be on the correct side of the Bible from his reading. And he's also not, I mean, This gay rights issue, I think, is really harming uh, uh, religion. And I think, uh, and what I mean by that is, and I'm not trying to take a position here either way, I do have my position, but that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is, the more that that, the evangelical Christians obsess about, you know, fighting gay rights, I think they're just going to be shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, I think it's the wrong issue to be obsessing about. Surely there's other things in there related to God's will that could be more important and could be more successfully uh, uh, fought about. But... I just think I can only say I, I teach college students. I see them every year, year in and year out. They just don't have the same uh, issue or problem with homosexuality as previous generations did. I, I think it's a losing issue, and I think it's causing a lot of people to turn off. I saw this in the LEDs community too when I interviewed apostates from Mormonism. Uh, the vast majority of them said it was the gay marriage issue. Not they didn't say anything about you know Joseph Smith or or the Book of Mormon or the Golden Plates. It was all about they were upset about the Mormon Church's focus on fighting gay marriage, and it turned them off. So I guess if I were speaking to evangelical Christians, I would say, you know, on the one hand, yes, you have to be true to your faith, whether it's popular or not, whether it's contemporarily uh, cool or not, I, I get that. But on the other hand, um, I think if you pick certain issues, uh, it's just, it could be detrimental. And again, I, I'm not an expert here, but
1: I, I, I think understand. we're going to see I, more... I asked the question, yeah. so uh, I do appreciate, okay. again, the candid the candid response. Let me ask you one final question: as as we as we go, what's your next project? Because uh, I can tell, given all the things you've been involved with in the past, you you certainly have another project in line.
0: <laughs> Man, don't tell my wife that she wants me to take a break. She keeps urging me to stop writing and go swimming a little bit and go for a walk. Um, so uh, I've got a few things floating around in my head. Uh, you know, it's 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 tricky. Uh, uh, part of me wants to. Uh, I am interested in. <sighs> I have to say, in, in these children that are raised with no religion at all, and by that I mean they were never taught to identify with a the faith, they were never taken to church, and they were never taught to believe in God. So like the, you know, belief, behavior, and belonging is purely secular. I'd like to study these folks. Who are they? What, what can we learn about them? neurologically, psychologically, sociologically, um, and that's a demographic that I'm, I'm particularly curious about because a few of them are starting to show up in my classes. So these are kids that were not, you know, most kids would be like, oh, yeah, I was raised Catholic, but, you know, I stopped going to church when I was in high school, or, oh, yeah, I was raised Jewish, but, you know, after my bar mitzvah, I gave it up, or, yeah, my folks are Christian, but, you know, I don't really, and that, that's, that's the common thread, but I'm now getting a few students here and there who just sit in my classes, they were raised with no religion at all. They were never told they were anything. They were never taken to any youth groups. They were never taken to any summer camps. And, and I want to know a bit more about them. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of, that's that's my, I think that's where I may go next. I'm not 100% sure yet.
1: Well, I'll be looking for Professor Zuckerman. And in the meantime, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Well, it's really my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Christian faith is now more than 2,000 years old, and behind it stands the legacy of Judaism. And as we're looking at the Christian faith, we recognize that there have been millions and millions upon millions of sermons preached. There have been hundreds of thousands of books now also into the millions that have been published. There have been successive generations of Christian argument and Christian teaching. There have been creeds and confessions of faith and councils. There has been the development of systematic theology, and of course, in more recent years, there has been sustained attention to the development of a comprehensive and biblical Christian worldview, a way of life based upon plausibility structures that are distinctively Christian, upon ways of thinking that grow out of Christian faithfulness, and principles of thinking that are commensurate with what is revealed in Scripture, a truly Christian biblical way of thinking and living in the world." What makes this book by Phil Zuckerman so interesting, and I think even important, is the fact that it represents one of the first efforts to try to lay out a comprehensive worldview for someone who operates from unbelief rather than belief. I first grew to be interested in the work of Phil Zuckerman when I came to understand that he had developed this first Department of Secular Studies in any institution of higher education in the United States. That gained a lot of headlines nationwide. It got a lot of attention in the secular and in the religious press, but more in the secular press, where at least there was a great deal of interest in what exactly a Department of Secular Studies would study. And when we look at Professor Zuckerman's work, we understand that he has made a big contribution to understanding the world of unbelief and the contours of unbelief. He is a very serious scholar. As a sociologist, he's done really, really interesting work, especially as he has compared secularization and its effects culture by culture and society by society. His book written a few years ago entitled Society Without God, What the Least Religious Nations Tell Us About Contentment, really is in many ways a sociological preface to his newest book, Living the Secular Life. Now, as we look at this, there are so many issues that evangelical Christians should come to understand. In his academic and research work, Professor Zuckerman's given attention to some really, really interesting questions, and he has drawn out a lot of really interesting data. For example, he's taught two years in Scandinavia, and he looks at the different shapes that unbelief have taken in Scandinavia versus the United States. And that's why I was able to come back and ask him some questions based upon his own research about such issues as what he points to as security being one of those catalysts for an increase in unbelief. Now, from a Christian worldview perspective, that makes perfect sense to me because at least my reading of the development of organized and more systemic unbelief in Western societies is that this only could have come in a time of relative prosperity, in a time of security, as is now experienced in much of Europe. To put the matter bluntly, when you look at parts of the world that do not have that kind of security, you find very low levels of unbelief, certainly in terms of atheism or agnosticism. It turns out that perhaps, and it was really interesting to hear Professor Zuckerman reflect on this, It turns out perhaps that it is indeed that sense of economic security, which is the product of something that comes before it, that allows for the development of this kind of unbelief. And as a Christian theologian, here's what's really striking about that. It appears that when you're looking at the way that Western nations have adopted more secularized patterns of thinking, when you look at the rise of the nuns, that is, those with no religious affiliation, you'll notice that this comes with the inheritance of the Judeo Christian worldview behind it, specifically of the worldview in Western societies that is shaped explicitly by Christianity. And so even when we're looking at the development of social democracy, as it's known in so much of Western Europe, especially in in Northern Europe, you're looking at a civilization that still is explainable only in terms of its explicitly Christian roots. That led to the very interesting conversation we had about morality, and that's one of the most interesting sections of Professor Zuckerman's new book. Because when you look at the questions of morality, again, as I told him, I think Christians have to be particularly careful how we frame the argument. While we're speaking to an atheist, we should not say that it is impossible for that atheist to live according to some moral code. And furthermore, in terms of actual moral life, to live a life that is ethically superior to at least some who would claim to be believers, even explicitly Christians. That's to the potential embarrassment of Christianity, but it's embarrassing also to make arguments that just do not hold. And one of the arguments that doesn't hold is that an individual atheist cannot live a moral life. It seems to me the far more basic and urgent question is, how in the world does even an atheist know what the moral life is? How is there any understanding of morality that would be binding upon us and binding upon our neighbors? And how is it that we all of a sudden have emerged as moral beings in the first place? At points in his book, Professor Zuckerman is clearly premising his argument upon a more naturalistic understanding, especially in terms of atheism and evolution and modern cosmology. I understand that. But it seems to me that even in reading his book at face value, it's really hard to come up with how in the world we can be such moral creatures, concerned with such deep, urgent, and inescapable moral questions, and how we can actually come to so much moral consensus if we are indeed the autonomous moral selves operating in a non-moral universe that his book implies. I learned a lot reading Professor Zuckerman's book, and one of the things I learned is how we should be listening to unbelievers around us, understanding what they're actually saying, and also understanding what we would know ahead of time, and that is what we would see to be the inherent limitations of trying to construct an essentially comprehensive secular way of looking at life and of living that life, of understanding morality and meaning and wonder and even the raising of children. But even just sociologically speaking, there are some bracing facts in this book, some very interesting data to look at. One of them I thought was most interesting and should certainly be of interest to Christian leaders, Christian churches, and Christian parents has to do with those statistics indicating just how unlikely it is, statistically speaking, that someone raised in a comprehensively secular background will ever hold to any worldview that isn't essentially secular. Professor Zuckerman told us there are approximately 11% of American children being raised in those households right now, and all the statistical indicators, well, they tell us that number is likely to increase, that percentage is likely to grow. Finally, embedded within the book are some other really interesting arguments. In one section, he talks about the correlation between low levels of religious belief and high levels of support for assisted suicide. And then he also points in terms of the factors or catalysts leading to increased secularization – and even increased percentages of people leaving the faith, he points to the issue of homosexuality, and in particular the issue of the legalization of same-sex marriage. It's interesting how he came to the conclusion there. He said, I guess as evangelical Christians you have to hold to what you believe are basically revealed truths. He said, I get that, but if you're going to be looking at marketing, this is a very bad way to market. That's essentially the point he was making, and that's a point that we would have to concede. If indeed what we're looking at is a faith to be marketed, then in postmodern, post-Christian, increasingly secular America, we would have to come up with a completely new way of packaging the Christian faith. But, of course, understanding that comes from a very different worldview, a worldview that is based in the existence of God, and not just the existence of God, but of a speaking God who speaks to us in Scripture. And so the Christian faith isn't some kind of system of meaning to be negotiated, but it is rather a divine revelation that is to be received, and there's that word that came up again and again in this conversation, to be obeyed. Indeed, any honest reading about the Old and New Testament points to the continuing theme of obedience as what the creature owes to the Creator. I really did enjoy this conversation with Professor Zuckerman, and one of the things it demonstrates is not only our responsibility to understand how others think, but also the fact that we think better as Christians when we face these same issues and look at the same questions. I do look forward to meeting Professor Zuckerman in person and continuing this conversation. I will certainly hope for that. In the meantime, I'm indebted to him for joining me for Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mobley.